Well, good morning. And I wonder if I was to ask you what is God's uh, second greatest gift to mankind, what you might answer. I won't ask you what his greatest gift is because we all know that, right? But what is God's second greatest gift? Answers may vary. Maybe some of you would say family. I don't know, maybe the fact that we're here. But for many of us, we would probably think the planet. This planet actually is one of God's greatest gifts to us. I think we would probably agree on that. What it's not so easy to agree on is what to do about this planet. So today, I've got two uh, simple questions uh, which we're going to address. The first question, why should Christians care about climate change, which we've been looking at this morning? And then what should Christians do about climate change? So looking at this particularly from a perspective of church, of gospel, of Christians. So why should we care? I'm sure you do care already. I'm sure pretty much everybody here will care about this issue. But I want to be clear today as to why climate change is a gospel issue, actually a Christian issue. And I could perhaps ask another question in starting and say, what is God's greatest concern for our world? What would God's greatest concern be for our world? Again, many answers, but one of them would surely be God's concern for the poor. And what we find is, throughout Scripture, we see, repeated in Scripture, God's concern for the poorest. It's a mandate that occurs to look after the poor, to look after the needy, to look after widows and orphans, to look after aliens, strangers in the land, again and again and again. few examples, uh, the repeated instruction to Israel in the Old Testament to look after widows and orphans and strangers, particularly foreigners, because the Lord says, you also were foreigners when you were in Egypt. This could happen to you. And the repeated refrain through the Old Testament that occurs again and again and again, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, I'm more interested in how you treat the poor than how you face me on a Sunday. I'm more interested in what you do for the poor throughout the week than how well you sing on a Sunday. The idea that God desires mercy, not sacrifice, occurs repeatedly. And perhaps um, most famously summarized in Micah, where Micah says, what does the Lord really require of you? What does he really ask of us? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly. And what does it mean then to act justly, to love mercy in this world today? And then it continues into the New Testament, God's concern for the poor. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 2 where there's been an argument it's actually about circumcision but anyway the argument's resolved and Paul ends it by saying we agreed but all they asked of me was that we should continue to remember the poor the very thing I was eager to do Galatians 2 the very thing I was eager to do anyway and in Matthew 25 Jesus says I'm going to consider you I'm going to judge you not on your theology but on, but on what, did, what did you do for the poor did you, did you give me a drink when I was thirsty? Did you give me food when I was hungry? Did you come to visit me when I was in prison? Did you clothe me? That's how, how I will judge you. And uh, there's, uh, uh, I think, two occasions in the Gospels where Jesus shows real anger. Possibly more, but two famous ones. One is the cleansing of the temple, which we all know about. But if you look at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is angry with particularly the, the teachers 
And he's very angry, and he rails against them. And one of the things he says in Matthew 23 is the, it's the woe, woe to you. He says, woe to you, teachers and Pharisees. And one of the things he says is, woe to you. You've given 10% of your spices, because that's what they did. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You give your 10%, but where's the mercy? Where's the justice? Where's your concern for justice? Catherine Hayhoe is an is a international Christian climatologist, and she's worked with Tear Fund in developing a series of videos on climate change, a couple of which I'm going to use today. And here's what she has to say about climate change and poverty. Climate change specifically because it does affect the poorest and most vulnerable in the world. It's no accident that there is a direct correlation between people who are already living in poverty and people who are most vulnerable. Because how climate change affects us is by loading the weather dice against us. In the places where we live, we know that we've always had heavy rainfall, floods, heat waves, hurricanes, droughts, storms, wildfire, and more. These are a normal and natural part of life on this planet. But the warmer it gets, the more frequent or the stronger and more damaging these events are getting. We know that the frequency of heavy precipitation is increasing. We know that heat waves are getting more extreme. We know that droughts are getting stronger. We know that wildfires are burning greater area. We know that cyclones, hurricanes, or typhoons, all the same storm, they're just called different names in different parts of the world. We know that they're not getting more frequent, but they're getting much bigger, stronger, slower, more powerful, with a lot more rainfall associated with them. And then there's the long-term changes, like creeping sea level, with two-thirds of the world's biggest cities, many of those in developing countries, lying within just a meter of sea level. So why does climate change matter? It matters because, precisely because, it disproportionately affects the poorest and most vulnerable in the world. If we have a flood in a rich country, it can be devastating. It can produce very expensive damages. But if they have a flood in a developing country as occurred, for example, two and a half years ago in Bangladesh during the monsoon season, where due to the abnormally heavy rains, a third of the entire country was underwater. The impacts can be beyond belief. Where I live, in Texas, we experienced a massive record-breaking drought in 2011 and 2012. Where we live is, climatologically speaking, very similar to Syria. And in Syria, they also experienced a drought that's estimated to be two to three times more likely as a result of a changing climate. But that drought was occurring on top of an unstable political system, on top of poverty, on top of ongoing conflict, a pre-existing internal refugee crisis, all of which led climate change and its impact on the drought to be like the final straw on the camel's back. You can have a healthy camel that doesn't have much on it, it can absorb that extra straw. But if you have a camel that is malnourished, underfed, in poor health, already overloaded, that's when climate change can truly be the final straw that breaks the camel's back. Catherine uses this phrase later in that video. You can find it on the Tia Fund website. She says, climate change is a threat multiplier. It's actually a phrase that's taken from the military world, but it's very appropriate here. Climate change is a threat multiplier. In other words... It takes issues of poverty, hunger, lack of education, lack of health care, lack of stable political systems, and makes them many times worse. 
They are made many times worse because of climate change. They are issues which we don't have in the West. So climate change disproportionately affects the poorest first in a kind of domino effect. Everything goes wrong. If we suffer flooding in this country, and we do, it's a terrible event. I don't want to minimize it. But we have insurance. We have emergency services that actually work. We have hospitals that actually work. For billions of people in the world, it, it's the final straw. They don't have systems that work. Uh, here's a picture taken very recently from the floods in Pakistan. And uh, I invite you to look at what Tiafund and Christian Aid are doing in flooded parts of the world, including Pakistan, and perhaps give something. You could do that on their websites today. Climate change is a threat multiplier. So if you don't take anything else away from the message today, take this away, that climate change is a gospel-centric issue because it is an issue of injustice and poverty. That's why it's centric to what we do and what we, what we believe. It's an issue of inequality, injustice, it's a hunger issue, and that makes it a gospel issue. So that's the first reason we should care about climate change, because it is an issue of injustice and poverty. The second reason we should care about the earth and the climate is because God cares about the earth and the climate. And he really does care. And so many times in Scripture, I've just picked a couple of examples, we see God's concern and care for the planet and how it's stewarded. Here's a passage from the Old Testament, Leviticus, when the people were about to, well, they were going to enter the new land. And God gives them a series of instructions. And here he says, uh, the Lord says to Moses at Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I'm going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years, sow your fields, and for six years, prune your vineyards and gather your crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest. The land is to rest. That idea of resting the land is God's idea. Don't over-exploit. Look after this land. It's a Sabbath, which makes it one of the Ten Commandments, doesn't it? And also, throughout Scripture, we see God's sheer joy with the earth. Just God's delight in the earth. We see it again and again. Read your Bible and look at God's sheer joy in creation. Obviously in Genesis 1, where God creates the animals and the plants and the light, and it's good, it's very good. But throughout, God constantly uses images of a healthy planet to illustrate his nature and his message. Here's one other example I've picked from Isaiah 55, which I think demonstrates God's just sheer delight with the earth. And this is, what, uh, this is what Isaiah says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, making it bud and flourish so that it yields seeds for the sower and bread, and, uh, bread for the eater. Think about these images that God's using. So my word that goes out from my mouth will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And then you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And look at this illustration that he uses for joy and peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. Instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. Now, when we read passages like that, we have an analytical way. We immediately jump to, oh, this is what it means. This is what it means. God's word, that's what it's about. 
and trees clapping their hands. It's about God's joy. It, it does mean that. But let's just pause on the illustration that God chooses. Because he could have chosen any, any illustration, any analogy. But he chooses these wonderful pictures of trees clapping their hands, of, of, the, of, 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 the, of the rain and the snow coming down, and plants growing and flourishing and budding and flowering. He chooses those illustrations above others. God's joy is with the earth. Images of a healthy planet again and again throughout Scripture. So why should we care about the climate and the earth? Because it's a justice issue and because God cares. Sometimes we're put off, aren't we? Right? We're put off, actually. We see pictures like this from Extinction Rebellion or Insulate Britain. That's the guy at the bottom right who glued his face to the road. In case you're thinking of doing that. Right? Don't use the glue that he used. He, he, he regretted it. But anyway, we see pictures like this, and our natural reaction is to distance ourselves. I'm not like that. I'm not a protester. I'm not a tree hugger. And we back off, don't we? Because we're not like that. And it seems like, for some people, this has become their religion, like an alternative religion. And we back away as Christians. But the point I want to make to you is this. If you're here today online or on site as a Christian, this is already part of your religion. The climate and the earth is already part of our faith. Looking after the earth was always part of the commandments of God to us. It's central to our faith. We already profess. It always has been. It's just that the problems have only, occurred in, have only come to surface in the last 10 to 20 years. So this might be a new religion for some people, but it was always part of our religion. So that's the first question. Why should we care? Uh, why should Christians care about climate change, particularly? Now the second question. What should Christians do about climate change? Obviously, a lot of this will overlap with what everybody needs to do. But what should Christians do about climate change? We, we have objections to this, don't we? That, you know, reasons that we don't want to do anything. One reason is we see it as far away in the future or far away uh, in other countries. But it isn't anymore, is it? It's here. It, and it's coming here. Every, every year, do you, know, you must have noticed that every couple of months in this country, oh, July was the driest month and February was the, warm, you know, the warmest February on record and here's the driest July on record and the hottest summer on record. It's not right that records have been broken all the time. That isn't, that isn't right. That isn't what God intended. That isn't normal. Records are there because they're the record. And the other issue, I think, the other reason I think that we often back away from climate change issues is we think, it'll make my life hard. This is going to make my life difficult. But that's a very short-term view. In the medium term, never mind the long term, in the medium term, this will make all of our lives better if we can be serious about climate change. It will make our lives better, but it will make our children's lives much better. And it will make our grandchildren's lives even livable. This is here and now. So what can we do then? What can we do? We do have to reduce our carbon output, what they call decarbonization, use of fossil fuels, reducing the carbon in the atmosphere, the CO2. We have to reduce our carbon output. But we need to do it intelligently. And we need to be aware that in parallel, there are other forces at work. This is a, this is a world issue. 
is for everybody. So there are many, many different strands to this. And I've tried to just here give three things that we can do about climate change. And the first one is simply to be informed. Be informed. This climate on the news every other day, it was on the news this morning from the Labour Party conference. But don't uh, switch off or back away and think, oh, not another story about the climate change. It's our responsibility to be informed. And there are nuances. Have you heard of greenwashing? Greenwashing, it's like what we used to have whitewashing, where there's a problem in a company or organization, and they cover it up, they whitewash it. Well, greenwashing is where organizations, companies, and countries rush to make big announcements about the climate when actually they're not really doing anything. So a company pays a couple of hundred quid for some trees to be planted in Burkina Faso. So, oh, we've paid, you know, we, we're doing tree planting. Let's put it on the website. Let's do a memo to staff. Let's do a press release. It's greenwashing. They're doing almost nothing. So look out for that. Is it, what are you actually doing as an organization? I can see what you're saying on, on your website, on, on your social media, but what have you actually done? Or is it just greenwashing? Be aware of greenwashing. Be aware that they are, there are geopolitical forces now around this issue of climate and energy. Uh, in the news increasingly, energy is being weaponized. We see the weaponization of energy in what Putin is doing with Nord Stream 1. It's, it's using energy as a weapon. And uh, there are new geopolitical forces coming where energy will be weaponized. So as we decarbonize, as we move from fossil fuels to cleaner energy, for example, electric cars, there are new materials that we need. We need minerals and what they call rare earth metals. They're not that rare, but they're called rare earth metals. And uh, the vast majority of this world's uh, minerals and rare earth metals are either supplied or controlled by one country. Do you know who that is? China. It's China, isn't it? You know that. And actually, 98% of the EU's rare earth metals come from China. 98%. So expect geopolitical forces. We need to engage in e ecological diplomacy. Expect this to happen in the news. And then lastly, on being informed, if you're into technology, and, and I am, and maybe some of you are, be aware of, of the technologies that are coming up for carbon extraction, carbon removal. There are technologies that are in the world that are at work, where air can be sucked in, uh, in a simple, uh, to simplify it, the carbon dioxide is removed, and, and it can be pushed out again. That works, carbon extraction. But those solutions cannot scale up to the extent that we need. They help, but they cannot solve the problem. We have to decarbonize. We have to stop using fossil fuels. So be informed, first thing. Watch the news as it develops. Be aware of geopolitical forces. Be aware that some, for some people it's just greenwashing. It's just words. They're not really doing anything. Secondly, do your bit. Do your bit. No change is too small. We have to get out of this idea that just, you know, if I'm not using plastic bags, that won't make any difference. We have to get out of that mindset. Actually, our, the whole premise of our gospel is that God chooses to use the smallest, the weakest, what appears the most foolish in this world, doesn't he? As Paul says, God de deliberately chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He deliberately chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God loves to do that. This is... God's way of working is mustard seed economics. 
what is tiny and almost insignificant can grow into a huge tree with God's blessing, with God's help. And I put a, a link there, and it's in the, um, underneath the video on YouTube, in the notes, I put a couple of links under there. This is one which I, which I thought was really good, which we found when we were looking, called climatestewards.org. Climatestewards.org will give you simple, practical advice, like reducing your red meat, uh, reducing the number of flights that you take. But they also have a very usable section of the website which shows you how to offset your carbon. So if, you, if, you, if you're going to get on a plane from Manchester to Rome or whatever it is, they will calculate it uses this much carbon. And if you pay £29 or whatever it is towards this project, which is, could be a tree planting project, it could be a decarbonisation project, you will offset your carbon. And you can do that. We should be doing that if we are taking those journeys, which most of us will for a long time to come. And this isn't greenwashing. This is a Christian organization, and they are partnered with, with loads of household name Christian organizations. They're partnered with Tear Fund, with Mission Aviation for Fellowship, with Bible Society, with, British, with um, a Baptist Missionary Society, with OMF, with USPG. Loads of Christian organizations that you know are, have partnered with climatestewards.org. So have a look at that. And then um, lastly, oh, sorry, lastly, yeah, do, we need to do our bit. So I'm really interested in what the kids bring back in terms of what can we do as a church, right? Do our bit. In uh, 2019, I, put, I set a team up, and some of you were on it, to deliver a policy on, environmental, on, on how we look after the environment at LBC. That was brilliant, but it was a few years ago. And... Uh, we, need to, we are now in a different world, post-COVID, etc. And, I, and we wonder, we're wondering now if climate and justice issues should be part of our developing vision for LBC. We've mentioned before that we are looking to recast our vision from 2017, to recast that vision. Hugh spoke about it last week. The leaders are going on an away day next week. There will be at least two Sundays that Jonathan and I will do in October and November on vision and recasting the vision, and then it will go to small, group, but it, small groups. But here's the question. Should these issues of climate justice, should these issues of climate change be part of our recast vision as a church? Should they be? I don't know. We're not going to push that on you. We don't want to do that. We want you to consider it prayerfully and to come back. And we don't want a, a greenwashed vision, do we? We don't want to say... As our vision for LBC, we're going to do this, 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 and this. And by the way, we care about the planet. Let's, not, let's be honest. If we're not going to do anything, then let's be honest about that as well. It's a question for you to consider online or on site. To what, in what ways will the climate and climate change and climate justice be part of our vision? You have a voice, and we want to hear your prayerful reflection on this. So to end, <clears throat> and we can end positively... Um, don't spend time, um, you know, regretting the past. Um, some people would have us uh, regretting everything, all the past history of fossil fuels, etc. Fossil fuels, I think, actually have played a, very, played a very positive role in the development of human civilization. Um, if it wasn't for fossil fuels, many life improvements across the world, including electricity, transportation, refrigeration, education, healthcare, may not have been possible in the past. It's not fossil fuels that are the problem, it's our overuse, our over-exploitation 
of fossil fuels that's caused the problem. Often the case, isn't it, in God's world where something is good, but we overuse it and it becomes bad. So let's not look backward. Let's look forward because we are a people of hope. We have hope. Hope for the future. Hope for Christ's return. And hope for our planet with, with which we have been entrusted. It's not too late. It's not too late. There is time to act. There are no magic numbers. Here, once again, is Catherine Hayhoe on the parts that we can play, on the magic numbers, and then we will pray. There is no magic threshold. It's kind of like there's no magic number of cigarettes that you can smoke with no consequences. Imagine if you could smoke 9,999 cigarettes and you would be 100% fine. And then, but if you just smoke one more, that would give you lung cancer. We know that that's ridiculous. We know that there's no magic number, but the more cigarettes you smoke, the greater the impacts on your lungs and the greater the risk of developing something serious like emphysema or lung cancer. In the same way, we know that the more carbon we produce and the faster we produce it, the more dangerous the impacts. Back in 1992, almost every country in the world got together and agreed to stabilize the levels of heat-trapping gases in the atmosphere at a level that would prevent dangerous human interference with the climate system. But the problem is, what's dangerous? Some would say that we've already reached it. If they live on crumbling permafrost in the Arctic, if they live in low-lying coastal areas or islands that are already being inundated by sea level rise, they would say it is already dangerous. But for others, especially people who live at higher elevation, in richer countries, with more resources at their disposal, if the price of food doubles, if their insurance costs triple, they can afford to pay it. For those people, they might say, oh, well, it's not dangerous yet. So that's why the world spent 25 years arguing over what was dangerous before finally coming together in Paris in 2015 and agreeing that they would limit global average temperature to well below 2 degrees Celsius and pursue efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees. Now, are these magic numbers? No, they're not. If we end up at 1.499 degrees, it doesn't mean that everything is totally fine. People are already suffering the impacts today. If we end up at 2.01 degrees, it doesn't mean that it's all over. The world is ending. We're going to hell in a handbasket. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. No. What we know scientifically is the more carbon we produce, the greater the risks. And the flip side of that, of course, is... The more carbon we reduce and the faster we do so, the better off we all are. There is no magic threshold. Some amount of impacts are too late to avoid because they are already here. Or they've become inevitable. It's kind of like we've been smoking a pack of cigarettes for years and decades and some lung damage is already permanent. But we know, and I know this for sure because this is what I study, that there is a world of difference between a future where we continue to depend on fossil fuels versus a future where we wean ourselves off fossil fuels as soon as possible. And the difference is not the survival of our planet. The planet will still be orbiting the sun long after we're gone. The difference is the survival of human civilization as we know it, and particularly the survival of the poorest and most vulnerable. Let's pray then, and then we'll worship again. And what does the Lord require of you? 
to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge today, Lord, that we haven't looked after the poorest. We haven't looked after those who suffer injustice. And part of that is because we don't look after this planet. Lord, we take it as our responsibility, Father, as stewards of this planet, to do more. We pray you would help us, Father, to be responsible, to be informed, to see what we can do as individuals, and to consider what we can do as your church. Give us this, we pray. Give us this wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen.